there's a, a very popular idea, especially with younger entrepreneurs, especially on social media today, which is the idea of hustle and grind and hustle and grind and hustle and grind. And in, in the book and in some of your podcasts, you've said, you know, the predominant type of thinking in today's world is very closely aligned to immediate action and consequently is greatly impoverished. Action drives out thought. Yes. So there seems to be uh, two kind of competing ideas here. One, hustle and grind. The other is, hey, don't hustle and grind. Sit, you know, acid, assiduously sit on your butt and just think for a while about what is the thing that I should be doing instead of just doing things. Um, wh- what, do you, what is your take on, on the hustle and grind kind of mentality that, that a lot of young startups seem to have when a startup is beginning? Should they hustle and grind or should they also be more calm and just thinking about the right action to take? Look, it's, it's definitely true that um, starting a business is something which is all-consuming. Uh, it, it, it has to be something that you put your heart and soul into. It has to be something that you are thinking about all the time. Uh, but the great thing is that the unconscious mind will do that for you. I mean, the, I think the unconscious mind, which uh, neuro, neuroscientists say is really responsible for about 95% of the thoughts that we have. Um, That doesn't take any effort at all, because if if you care about something, the unconscious mind will go to work, and it will work while you're on your bicycle, it will work while you're at the gym, it will work while you're looking at the roses, it will work while you're shaving, it will work um, when you're on holiday, on vacation, it it will work all the time. It It even works when you're enjoying a good night's sleep. And, have, and dreaming, which is sort of, you know, one of the great things that, that we do. Uh, you, how often do people wake up, sometimes in the middle of the night, sometimes in the morning, and something that they've tried to solve for a long time, particularly true for scientists and for people who really grapple with very, very important and difficult things in life, you know, the solution can come if you let your unconscious mind operate. And so... I think there is a paradox here, which is, you know, you do need to care about a business when you start a business. You know, I've started several businesses myself, and I do know that, that you know, or helped other people start those businesses. I do know you've absolutely got to be obsessive about it. But at the same time, that does not necessarily mean that you have to run yourself ragged to the point where you can't think straight. And Bill Bain it was who said action drives out thought. You know, that is is so true. And a lot of people believe that unless they're occupied for eight or ten hours a day on their work or whatever it is that they're most concerned about, they believe that, you know, they, they don't deserve to exist. You know, basically, I think it's the Protestant ethic sort of, you know, popping up its ugly head here. You know, it's it is... The idea that it's good for you to do something which is really hard work is one of the most pernicious ideas that has ever been generated. And, you know, you never, ever interview, rarely anyway, interview a very successful person, particularly if they're slightly defensive about having made a lot of money, without them saying, yes, you know, I've made a lot of money and it's wonderful and all the rest of it, but I did it through hard work. And what they never tell you is that there are literally, 
I would say, more than a billion people in the world who do work very hard and never get rich and are never successful. So, you know, I mean, that's, that's a certain asymmetry that they don't draw attention to. Um, but the idea is that they're, they're, they deserve their money and they deserve their success because they've worked hard. Well, I think that's, that's totally pathetic. Now, to, I'm not really answering your question because I'm saying, in a way, I know that when you start a business, it's a really serious commitment. It's going to uh, perhaps screw up your personal life. It's going to certainly mean that you can't devote as much time to friends in the, in the very short term. But, you know, it becomes a drug. And, you know, I think it's absolutely simple. I think when we started LEK, our, our consulting business, I worked all the hours that God sent for about a year and then I said to myself, this isn't working. You know, I'm not able to exercise for an hour a day, which I'd set uh, as an iron rule since the age of 30. When, when I was in my late 20s, I got a little bit podgy and I then decided whatever happened, I would exercise every single day for an hour, whatever the demands of the job, etc. Well, that went by the board temporarily in the first year that we started LEK. And, you know, I was anxious because I was worried about how we, you know, we employed a lot of people. We decided that we would try and grow at 100% a year for the first five years in revenue, in the number of people we employed, and in profit. And so we put a huge sort of um, stone around our necks, I suppose, uh, in terms of hiring people. And then we had to keep those people busy. Otherwise, you know, they wouldn't be happy and we certainly wouldn't be happy or rich, you know. And, and, and so, you know, we basically forced ourselves into a position, we thought we forced ourselves into a position where we actually had to do what we really didn't want to do. Um, and then I said to myself, well, you know, this is contrary to the 80-20 principle. This is contrary to sanity. And after the end of the first year, I said, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to behave like I used to behave and like I want to behave, which is I'm just going to do the important things and I'm going to encourage other people to just do the important things. And we invented this idea of the total lifestyle consulting thing, you know, which is... It was bullshit to some extent because, you know, some people really, really did want to work hard I and mean, you couldn't stop them. Uh, but, you know, I always tried to make it fun uh, for myself and for other people, tried to limit the amount of time spent in the office in particular um, and uh, just refused to do what I've been doing before, which was run myself to, to the degree that I couldn't think. Um, and then gradually, over time, as I've, you know, as I've got older, I've been more and more lazy, you know, and it's not, it's not sort of, you know, it's not something that I'm ashamed of. You know, I have tried to do the things that I like doing, and I've tried to limit the amount of work that I do each day by putting other things in the agenda, which I know I will enjoy, like playing tennis or riding my bicycle or talking to people that has nothing to do with my business. And so... Yeah, it is possible to do it. You can't do it. I would say the first six months, the first year of starting a new business, you do have to grind and hustle. But don't don't mistake the fact that that is a temporary aberration. It needn't carry on and it mustn't carry on if you're going to continue to be creative and think about the business rather than be a slave. You know, you can hire other people to do things, 
but you yourself, you've got to believe I have some kind of advantage in thinking because otherwise you wouldn't have started the business in the first place. So, you know, you, you think very hard about what is different about the business. You know, what can the business do that no other business can do? What can you do that provides a huge amount of satisfaction to customers or that provides something very cheap, uh, very effective and, and easy to use? You know, you just basically have got to believe in creativity because we didn't make progress in the 20th century and in the 21st century by working longer. If you look at the number of hours that people have worked in all of the advanced countries, they were about double what they are now 100 years ago, and before that they were even higher. The beginning of the Industrial Revolution, you know, people started working much harder than they'd ever worked before, but that was a temporary thing. It, it, it's tailed off. And I'm always amazed, you know, when people told me that for the first time that at a particular firm that I was a shareholder of, the uh, employees had a six-week vacation. You know, I, I was outraged. I thought, this and then I thought, well, hang on a bit, minute, Richard. This is what you've been preaching, isn't it? So, so, so you know, I, I couldn't complain about it. Uh, and I'm always amazed that, that, that there are certain countries in the world where people work much longer hours than other people. One of them is Greece. You know, have you looked at the GDP figures for Greece? You know, and another is America. America's a real outlier because America is a very wealthy country. But why is it that Americans work probably about 20 or 30% more hours than people in Germany or France, and certainly in Switzerland or Sweden? And those countries have got more or less equivalent GDP per head. You know, why is that? Uh, I blame the Puritans. I blame the Protestants. And, you know, it's, it's this Protestant ethic again. In, uh, in the 80-20 manager, Richard, you, uh, in, in other interviews I've, I've heard with you, you talk about uh, Michael Eisner and uh, Disney and yeah. how and he brought Disney back and, and kind of started a revolution there a little bit, uh, financially at least. And uh, you said it, it could kind of be traced back to just three major decisions that he made. Can you talk about that, that kind of case example a little bit? Yeah, I mean, he was a complete workaholic. And, um, you know, uh, one of his best friends, you know, was killed in a helicopter crash because he was dashing from one place to another. It wasn't, I don't think, on business, but it was the same, it was the same kind of mentality. Eisner was a genius. I mean, there's no doubt that, that he took um, Disney back to its roots and he realised that the value of Disney was very much in the characters that Walt Disney had created. You know, starting, of course, with uh, that, that uh, very sadistic rodent, um, Mickey Mouse. Uh, and he realised that, 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 you know, there's a huge amount of value in that. So, so he did three things which were fantastic. And I'll see if I can remember what the three of them. One was that he increased the number of Disney hotels, which could actually um, uh, make a large profit because actually kids liked going to them and, and parents liked taking their kids to them because of the characters involved in it. The second thing which he did was he put up the price price of the theme parks because Disneyland and its progeny were very, very successful. 
And the other thing which he did, I can't remember, frankly, but it sounds as though you've been reading the book lately, so tell me. Uh, while I look yeah. it up. <laughs> it started, well, started the videos of the Oh, yes. Classics. Exactly. Well, it's the same thing, isn't it? The same principle, basically. He was going back to where the value lay. I mean, the thing about Walt Disney was that he invented things which have become part of the cultural furniture of kids, certainly, but all of us, you know. I, 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 I remember a time when I was walking through uh, a wood, a forest near here in Portugal with a Portuguese uh, friend, and... Uh, we came across some deer and he said, look, there's a whole pile of bambus there. And I said to him, they're called deer, Francesco, they're called deer. He said, we always call them bambus. And, and you know, it's, it's priceless. And, you know, he was going back to things that, well, how long did it take him to make those three decisions? You know, a tiny amount of his time. And yet he felt that he needed to impose this um, discipline of huge number of hours on himself and on everyone else. And he should have been the last person to do that because decisions generally, I think, are just one of the most wonderful things about human beings. Other animals, as far as we can tell, don't make decisions. They act on instinct. And of course, we act on instinct as well, but we are capable of making decisions. And when we make decisions, um, if they're good decisions, it can totally change our lives. I mean, just think about the decision of who you're going to marry or spend your time with. You know, that's a very, very important decision. And uh, it doesn't take, on the whole, very much time. But we often give very little thought to it and don't realise that this is going to make us very happy or make us very miserable for many years to come. Uh, decisions, you know, which business should you work in? Which line of business should you work in? Where in the world should you live? You know, should you pay high taxes uh, because you happen to have grown up as an American or should you live in Puerto Rico, um, for example? You know, it's... Uh, these things called decisions can make all the difference and they don't take very much time. But decisions are one of the things which require hard thinking if you're going to make the right decisions. Not time, but real hard thinking. And if you're very, very busy, other people will take the decisions for you. And that's probably not a good idea. Why do you think it is so hard for people to just sit and, and do the hard thinking because I've certainly noticed people have an inclination to just be busy uh, as, as a default instead of sitting there and thinking uh, because you're obviously you're exactly right. The, the decisions are those big dominoes and they'd rather spend all this time on just running around. Uh, I think there was a French philosopher. Um, I can't remember which one it was. Maybe you can remember uh, who said that 90% of the problems of mankind are that they can't sit quietly in a small room. Uh, and, um, you know, I think it, 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 our culture is very much a culture of doing things. Um, and people find it hard to disengage. They find it hard to um, put themselves in a position where they can think. Thinking is a lonely and solitary activity. Of course, you can afterwards discuss the decision with other people, and I, I always do that. But, you know, you've basically got to 
do the original thinking and you're going to make the final decision. And it's an intuitive thing. You can't, a spreadsheet can't tell you. You know, your computer can't tell you. Your iPhone, even your iPhone, which can do everything, can't tell you. You know, you actually have to decide. So, I mean, the secret to that is, is very, very simple. You've just got to go somewhere where you can relax, uh, preferably somewhere that's very peaceful, quiet. Uh, it's nice to have some running water, you know, by a stream, or I like to do it on my fish pond. Um, you know, and then you just basically say to yourself, I'm not going to let myself out from this until I've made this decision. And, you know, and... You know, you don't make decisions all the time. I mean, you can be one decision a month, which could make a huge difference, or one decision a year. But you have to make yourself take the decision and preferably come up with an answer that nobody else uh, can come up with uh, because it's personal to you, because it's part of your soul, it's part of your DNA, it's part of your character. Um, and, um, yeah, I mean, just make those decisions. But you can only do it, as Bill Bain said, action drives out thought. If you think, you know, I'm, I'm not a believer, as I've said, in hard work, but I am a believer in hard thinking. And most of us get out of the habit of hard thinking once we've left school and yippee, we don't have to take examinations anymore. And, you know, I remember that was a huge liberating thing. But then I sort of, sort of later on, I realised I actually quite liked examinations. I, can, I actually liked thinking. So that's why I write books, because, you know, it makes me think. And that's why I read books, of course, although not all of them make me think, but those that, that I really like, those, those that I read again and again and again are the ones that make me think. Um, and, um, yeah, uh, you've, got, you've just got to think. It's not, you know, the principle is easy. The practice is hard until you make it a rule that that's what you do. Um, so make it a rule that, you know, if you've got to take a decision, set a deadline and go somewhere peaceful until you've, you know, go for a walk, sit by, sit by a stream, sit on, sit on the park bench, you know, whatever you want to do that's feasible for you, where you're not going to be interrupted and you're going to be alone and you're going to be able to think. And you might want to take some aids. I know some people, when they have a decision to take, take a bottle of wine somewhere. Well, there's nothing wrong with that. Absolutely nothing <coughs> wrong with that. You know, other, other people, you know, it has to be totally quiet, etc., and they have to do nothing else for the whole day. That's fine too, you know. Whatever floats your boat. But think and make decisions. Were, were there, when you were younger, like earlier in your career, were there a couple of role models, maybe CEOs like Bill Bain or other people who you saw exemplify kind of this 80-20 thinking, 80-20 uh, lifestyle and the way they approached life or the way they approached leading or growing their business? Yeah, you know, I mean, absolutely. And my two mentors, although they didn't really know that they were mentors, and one of the ideas which I come up with is called a fantasy mentor, which is sort of someone that you want to have as your mentor you learn all about them and you think what they would do in this situation. Um, and um, the, the two mentors who did, did talk to me somewhat and um, that I admired hugely for different reasons were Bill Bain, who started Bain & Company, and Bruce Henderson, who started the Boston Consulting Group. Uh, obviously, Bruce Henderson started BCG and then Bill Bain went to work for him before he then decided to set up his own shop and you know, 
basically ruined a whole year of Bruce Henderson's life because he said he, it was, he felt desolated, he felt violated by this guy going and setting up a competition with him. Uh, but they were, and they were both enormously amusing. I mean, Bill Bain was deliberately amusing. He had the driest sense of humour of anyone I've ever come across. And, um, you know, when he had had a drink or two, he would make fun of some of his clients. You couldn't possibly repeat some of the things that he said. And Bruce Henderson was funny because he was, he was not aware that he was funny. And uh, Bruce was... Bruce was one of the most cantankerous and difficult people, personally, awkward, uh, that I have ever met in my life. And when he went, after he'd started Boston Consulting Group, eventually the partners had to get together and say to themselves, you know, this isn't going to work if Bruce wanders into, uh, you know, Jane's uh, little cubicle and, uh, you know, Arthur's uh, little office, you know, and talks to them because every time <laughs> Bruce talked to these people, they would then come to talk to one of the sort of you know older and wiser other leaders of the company, like there's a guy called Cy Tillis, Seymour Tillis, who was a great ex professor of Harvard Business School and an Italian guy, a very you know, very, very wise person. And uh, you know, so they would all go, go and talk to to Cy and they would say, Well. You know, do you know what he did? You know, and Cy remarked, this was at the funeral service of, of uh, Bruce Henderson, the memorial service in Boston after Bruce had passed away. And he said, you know, to the assembled audience, he said, he told the story and he said, it was never necessary to inquire who the he was. Because it was always Bruce Henderson, yeah, and and so they decided that Bruce had to be sort of kept away, and they put it left it. They put that they gave him an office, which was a lovely sort of you know palatial office, but it was away from everyone else on a different floor. Uh, but the thing about Bruce, the reason that I admire him so much, uh, is that he did everything from first principles. He believed in hard thinking, and he originated the, what I think is the most glorious yeah, chart. Uh, no, he didn't actually do it personally. Bill Bain and some of the other people actually did it. But he got people to think about a combination of market analysis and financial analysis. And that's what strategy was. It was perming those two things. And it was incarnated in the gross share matrix, which to me tells you what to do about any business segment. You know, you divide it up into high growth markets and low growth markets and into businesses where you are the leader or businesses where you're not the leader. You know, and it tells you that all the value is in the very, very few businesses which are very high growth and which are um, where the company is dominant or the lead has a leading market share. And that's where they make all their money. It's where they make all their cash. And they're the most fabulous businesses to have, and yet people don't actually think, you know, can I have a star business like that uh, very much? And if they have a star business, they very often screw it up by losing relative market share. Uh, they, they may grow the business as the market grows, but someone else becomes the leader because they haven't thought hard enough about how to protect that. Well, Bruce worked out the few things that you need to know to be successful in business. And it's all there on this two by two matrix, basically. And that was his genius because of the downfall of the Boston Consulting Group 
or that is a very successful downfall, was that they stopped using that chart <laughs> and they tried to invent other products because they were so creative and they were creative. But, but anyway, but the thing about Bruce was that he was, he had incredibly high expectations. I remember one occasion on which we presented to uh, uh, British and continental um, European uh, presidents, chief executives, chairman of companies at a very, very posh hotel called Tudon Glen in the New Forest of uh, in England, southern England. And it was a very successful conference. We got lots of business from it. And then after all the guests had left one day, Bruce sat down with the presenters, of whom I was about the most junior person at the time, uh, and he ripped us apart. And some, one, one person very bravely said, Bruce, why, why are you complaining? We've, we've got all this new business from the conference. And he said, everything that you have said at this conference in the last three days, I have been saying for the last three years, as though an ice age had kind of intervened, you know, the three years was, was an ice age. He said, haven't you thought about anything new? And, you know, it was, it was this incredible belief that the great thing about the people that he hired, and, and God knows how he did it, but he had a fantastic nose for talent, including Bill Bain, who'd never worked in business, was a historian, and worked in the alumni office of his old um, college. You know, Bill Bain was the best hire that he ever made, which might explain why he was so pissed off at... Bill Bain disappeared, but but nevertheless, Bruce hired great talent and he drove us to think. And he never stopped thinking himself. And uh, he was always trying to reduce everything. He wasn't trying to, he always tried to simplify everything and say, you know, what is the key thing here? Well, how do we get to the third level of insight? And so on and so forth. With the result that I have never known a company, including Bain & Company or L.E.K., I've never known a company so composed of creative and very thoughtful people as Boston Consulting Group was. So that's why I admire Bruce, despite the fact that conventionally he was a horrible man. Uh, he wasn't a horrible man. He was actually very shy and, and very demanding and, you know, he was cranky for sure. I think his heart was in the right place, but it was a very difficult heart to locate, I can tell you. <laughs>